sent me. Father, we know that you sent your son for the very purpose to proclaim these things. And Lord, we ask that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, which is in the world right now, speaking to the hearts of men, women, and children in every continent and every place, Lord, would speak to our hearts this morning. Maybe we've heard this message, Lord, many times, but may it be fresh and new. May it pierce our heart and our spirit. May, Lord, we pick up these things that you've asked us to do. And, Lord, that you would give us the strength, the desire, and, Lord, the power to do them. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Very appropriate, and certainly I had nothing to do with it, that we would come upon this particular text in what we would all recognize is that harvest season. You know, if you're riding around, you probably see some places are decorated now with the corn stalks, right? They're bundled together in the bales of hay and, and the pumpkins and, and everywhere. The word harvest is all over the place. Harvest sales and the literature you're getting from stores and everything. We did a you know, community fest with a harvest theme. All of these different... Harvest America, we just did. Pastor Greg preaching from the American Airlines Center. Uh, and so this season of harvest, even the, the Jewish festivals uh, around the harvest season, all of these things. And so here it is, late October, harvest season, and we're looking at God's harvest, the harvest that the Lord himself has designed, the harvest that the Lord himself desires that you and I be a part of. And if you're saved, you are a part of the harvest, amen, that you have been gleaned by the Lord. And remember, he's going to have wheat and he's going to have tares and those, the wheat that he has gathered that will go into his barn, into heaven for all eternity. We're part of that harvest. But the Lord wants us not to just be part of the yield, but also to go back and contribute to that yield. And so we'll be looking at that this morning. Now, if you think about, if you think about a field that's ready to be harvested, you ever seen, um, we, don't have, we don't really have these kind of fields around here, but you ever seen uh, either on a documentary or on a commercial or some kind of program, those massive fields like in Nebraska and Kansas where they have those big green combines and they just kind of roll over everything. Now, if you've ever seen that, um, those machines are quite big, big, huge machines. They don't really, they don't really pivot. They just continue to go up and down, they take, short, they take these turns, and up and down. Now, in a field like that, you're going to have a number of things. You won't be able to see it with the naked eye. From a distance, just like one big mass. But guess what? In that area, there's going to be some bare spots. There's going to be other things growing at times. Jesus talked about this, tares growing. And what does the combine do? goes over all of it, every bit of it, the bare spots, things that might be growing, just the whole field. You go over the whole thing, and the Lord has a desire that if you look at the whole earth, God wants every single area to be harvested. What comes out of the harvest belongs to him. The results of the harvest belong to him. If you're taking notes of this morning, I've titled our time in God's word, sent into his harvest. He says here, the Lord of the harvest, sent into his harvest. We'll look at three things. Uh, this is my custom this morning. First, we'll look at the purpose. Second, we'll look at the prospects and principles. And third, we'll look at the pride. First is 
the prompt, uh, first is the purpose, second is the prospects and principles, and thirdly, we'll look at the pride. Under this purpose, uh, we see in verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 also. He sent them two by two his fate, uh, to go before his face into every city where he himself was about to go. Now, Jesus had been ministering in all the cities, primarily in Galilee. We know he went down into Judah, uh, into the area of Judah, Jerusalem, of course, being part of Judah. Uh, he went in down to the southern part of Israel from time to time. The vast majority of his ministry was up in Galilee and even went north of Galilee a couple of times, uh, we believe, as well. Perhaps the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, may have been north of Galilee. But nevertheless, the majority of his ministry was in Galilee, but there were also cities within Israel, even probably Galilee, that he himself had not gone into yet or hadn't gone into. People hadn't met him. Even though people had come far and wide, there were still people that had not heard him personally. Some people hadn't heard of him. Some people, he, villages he had not been to. There was a lot of different villages uh, to visit. So there was places where he had not been yet. Now, back in chapter 9, we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, we saw the sending of the 12. Remember that? I don't have 12 fingers, so think, think for 12 here. 12, 10 plus 2. He sent back in chapter 9, he had the sending of the 12 with virtually the exact same instructions. If you go back and read uh, the sending of the 12, you'll see that looks almost identical instructions. Go preach the kingdom of God, don't bring anything, all the same things. Now, they were to go and declare the kingdom of God. They were to go heal the hurting, heal the sick, cast out spirits, all of those things. They were to go in the name and the power of Christ himself. Those that want to come, come. Go to those cities. The 12 were sent out. Now, the 12, they corresponded. Jesus, of course, is not just, he's not just coming to fulfill his calling to call the world, but he's also fulfilling the Old Testament at the same time. Everything in the Law and Testament must be fulfilled. The 12 corresponded with the 12 tribes. Here we have 70 sent, and they're sent with the same instructions, and they correspond, these 70, to the 70 elders that Moses appointed. Moses appointed 70 elders back in Numbers chapter 11. This is actually at a time when Moses was very, very frustrated and distressed, and God raised up 70 elders to help Moses in the work. Sound familiar? The labor was really hard, and Moses couldn't do it on his own. God raised up 70 elders, and they would take on responsibility. Those 70 elders correspond to these 70 that are sent. And it tells us in Numbers chapter 11, 24, uh, when the Spirit rested upon them, that they prophesied, although they never did so again. And one of the things that's interesting is the 70 that are sent out. They're given some specific power. Numbers chapter 11, the 70 prophesied, though they never prophesied again. The 70 are sent out, and they actually are sent out at that time with an apostolic power. They were able to heal they were able to do the miracles of Jesus. Whether they ever could again, we don't know, but we know that back in Numbers 11, the 70 prophesied, they had a specific word from the Lord that they never received ever again. There may come, in 
the ministry of Jesus as there was the ministry of Moses. Things happened under the ministry of Moses that never happened again. Things happened under the ministry of Jesus that never happened again. The thing that will continue to happen again is the proclamation of the gospel. The apostles, they would go on to have in their ministries, they would be given specific Holy Spirit-given power and things that they would do that, I don't know about you, but I've not seen people doing some of the things that the apostles were given. So understand that there's a fulfillment here, a parallel. The 12 cent corresponding to the 12 tribes. The 70 cent corresponding to the 70 raised up under Moses. Luke records an added instruction that we'll look at near the end of this study. They were given the same instructions virtually that the 12 were given, but there's also an added instruction, one specific to the cities that reject the message and ministry that Christ has sent. So there's a specific instruction given to those cities that reject. We'll look at that near the end of our study this morning. But why is Jesus sending these additional 70? Why is he sending these additional 70? Well, ultimately, it's God's heart for the lost, beginning in the household of Israel. Jesus begins to manifest his heart for the lost in the household of Israel. Like the 70 elders in Numbers 11 that prophesied among the people, these men will prophesy of the Messiah to the people wherever they go. They've been given a prophetic message from Jesus, these things to say. They're coming to these cities because Jesus has a heart for the lost. Jesus coming to the earth, it was to redeem the whole world. You agree with that? The whole world. For God so loved the nation of Israel? No. For God so loved the world. Yes, he loves Hindus. He loves Muslims. He loves Buddhists. He loves Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, people that are atheists, people that are agnostic. God so loved the world that he sent his son, John chapter 3. So Jesus coming to the earth was to redeem the whole world, but he came personally to Israel. Personally, physically spoke to Israel, and then his message would do what? It would go out from there. Throw a rock into water, it has a point of entry, but what happens to the ripples? They go out. Jesus' point of entry was Israel, but the ripples would then go into the uttermost parts of the world. Matthew 15, 24, this is Jesus speaking. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' testimony. I came to the house of Israel. Not that the message would remain only in Israel, but that is where the point of entry would be and the ripples would move out from there, and we see this fanning out with the sending of the 70. We saw it with the 12, the fanning out. We see it with the 70, with the fanning out. That God is pushing the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel, the message of his own son, moves out. Now, Jesus, as we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, his eyes, and again, they were always focused on the cross, but he now is making those uh, final preparations. Things are drawing near uh, he's making those uh, final steps towards Jerusalem. He's fixed upon the cross, 
but many villages have yet to hear. Many villages have yet to hear of this message of the kingdom of God. They may have heard it secondhand, but they haven't heard it directly from Jesus or from his disciples, those that were his followers. Maybe they heard it along the way, but he's sending specific messengers into the world, out into these places that have yet to hear. Now Jesus, in preparing for his ascent to Jerusalem, again, Jerusalem is at a high place, as he prepares to ascend, he sends these disciples, he sends them out with this life-giving message to heal people. I mean, who doesn't really want to be healed? I mean, most of us, probably everyone here has something they'd like to be healed from. Something they say, I'd rather never take an acetaminophen ever again if I could. Right? Something of which they say, this part of my body doesn't work as well as it used to. I'm you saying, I've got only a few places that work as well as they used to. We'd all want something. He's sending out healing. He's sending these men with this life-giving message, but he's also sending them with a very stern warning. There's a great bit of life. There's a great bit of hope. There's a great bit of eternal life, eternal hope, great healing, great opportunity to be refreshed and restored, but he's also sending them. The text is very clear with a warning. And he sends them ahead. He sends them in front of his face, the scriptures say, out in front. He sends them much the same way. Remember John the Baptist was sent before to prepare the way of the Lord? Remember John the Baptist was sent before to prepare the way? He sends the 70 to prepare the way. They're sent ahead of him. We don't know all the reasons why, but we do know that when Jesus arrived where John the Baptist was, it gave John the Baptist the opportunity to do the following. That's who I was talking about right there. That's him. Isn't it great if you're, you know, you're telling someone about Jesus? The disciples, they go into a village. They tell all about him. Whatever. No, that's it. He comes, he comes a couple days later. There he is right there. That's the guy we were telling you about. He's the one. He's the one that gave us the power to do what we're doing. But they're sent ahead of him much the same way. Even at this point, in these villages, many of them have not yet heard Jesus. They've not yet heard the gospel. They haven't been healed. Many of them still have diseases that are life-threatening, many issues, many people that are possessed by spirits. They haven't heard the message of salvation from the Messiah. Because as we've seen with the other Jesus' other miracles, you know, issues of blood physicians couldn't help with. Issues of demonic spirits, nobody could help with. Issues of uh, death, nobody else could raise the dead. All of these things, they needed the Messiah, just like you and I. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. They needed Jesus. We need Jesus. Everyone outside these four walls needs Jesus. But you know what? Even though these villages, many of these villages, had not heard personally Jesus or his disciples preach the kingdom of God, many of these villages weren't that far away from places that had heard it. You know what? All around us, 
right here in the United States of America. Even here with our millions of Bibles in this nation. Think about it. Millions of Bibles. Thousands of churches. Hundreds of TV and radio programming uh, programs throughout the week with Bible teaching. It's hard to believe, but yet it's true. Many have not personally had someone share Christ with them. Personally had someone share Christ. We go into, we go into a youth correctional facility tonight. We've had kids there tell us, I've never heard this before. Now, I don't know if they heard it and it went, but at some level, at the heart level, many have not heard it, but some haven't heard it, period, even in our own nation, certainly around the world. Many people have not had someone personally invite them to a church service. You know, without faith, without the word of God, there is no changing of heart. People have to sit under something of truth to unlock all the hardness and the blindness and the years of just things that they have been told or have been telling themselves. Many have not personally been invited. I've mentioned this numerous times, but two-thirds of Americans, actually more than two-thirds, have never personally been invited by someone to church. More than two-thirds of Americans say by their, by the polls, have never been personally invited. Most people in the church have never invited anyone. Most of the church have not shared the gospel. Many have never, most Americans have not been personally, have not personally heard the gospel shared one-on-one. Yeah, they may have turned on the TV and saw something, but personally have someone reaching out directly to them. In the fields, as Jesus states, he says, truly the harvest is great. The fields, as he states in John chapter 4, they really are white and ready for harvest. And he says the harvest, he doesn't say, eh, it's not going to be much of a harvest. Hate to bum you all out. Hope you don't work real hard because there ain't going to be much yield. He says the harvest is what? Great. He says in John 4, as I mentioned, the fields are white unto harvest. The Lord loves, understand this, church, the Lord loves, loves, loves a harvest of souls, doesn't he? That's God's passion. You and I, we may not have it, but we need it to have the same passion. That passion for souls, that the harvest is great, that we would believe that. In his instructions here to the 70, he says the harvest truly is great. His instructions to them is now to go. Go out into that harvest. Go share the message of Messiah. And they're still the same instructions to us today, aren't they? They're the same instructions. Go out into the harvest. Share this message of the kingdom of God. Share the gospel. Share the hope of Christ. Jesus said, and this is to the church, but it's to us individually, let your light shine among men. I can't choose for someone else to let their light shine, but I can choose personally, Lord, help my light to shine. Help me to be a light in a dark place. That Halloween would be a light night, not a dark night. We have the opportunity. We actually have the hope. We have, 
when other people are celebrating death on Halloween, we can say, hey, let me tell you about a death you really want to know about. It took place in Jerusalem, and guess what? He's not dead anymore. He's not some figure. He's the Son of God. See, this is the express purpose of the church. God himself has prepared a harvest of souls. God has prepared the harvest. You didn't prepare it. I didn't prepare it. The 70 didn't prepare it. The 12 didn't prepare it. God himself has prepared a harvest. And the church, you and me, we're told to go reap in the harvest. We're called to go work in the harvest. We're called to bring in that harvest. He's the one. He alone provides. You look outside and the sun is shining. See these trees out here? They didn't have any of our help to grow. Matter of fact, I'm always amazed. I was walking the other day, and I saw it again. I've seen it a million times. I have some bearish patches in my grass. I've plugged them. I've aerated them. I've limed them. I've put down grass seed in them, and I've got some grass growing. I'm walking the other day, and I see fresh grass growing up through black pavement. There's no fertilizer there. There's no air. There doesn't even look like microscopically the room for a blade of grass to come out. And it's dark, bright green, fresh grass that had accidentally fallen down in there and grew up. I'm like, I should have ten times that in this bare spot. But God is the one. He sends rain. He provides soil. He provides everything. These trees out here will grow. You try and get one to grow, and sometimes it won't work. You didn't have enough shade. You didn't have enough this. You didn't have enough room. There wasn't enough sunlight. Tell that to the forest. Doing just fine. (laughs) He prepares the harvest. He himself prepares that sun, that soil, that rain. With or without rain, the trees seem to do fine. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, the Lord provides the conviction. He provides the sharp, two-edged word of God. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in the world. By the way, the Holy Spirit is working even if you don't think he's working. Amen? Some people are under conviction, and you don't know they're under conviction yet. That's why we're told to come along and just keep planting seeds. Because they may have, the soil may be really ready, and they may look like blacktop, where there's no chance of growth. None. Well, they're a radical Muslim. There's no way they would get saved. Whose God do you believe in then? You plant the seed anyway. God will take care of the results. He is the one that brings the power and the conviction, and the word of God is sharp. But the purpose of the church, the express purpose of the church, is we are to take that powerful stick of dynamite into our workplace, into our neighborhood, into our families, into anywhere we go. Hari Tori said, to win men to the acceptance of Christ as Savior and Lord is the only reason Christians are left in this world. To win men to the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is is the only reason Christians are left in this world. Do you and I believe that? Do you believe that's why Jesus, when he ascended in heaven, 
We know it's true because he said, now go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. He didn't say anything. Go into all the world and establish a church organization. Establish a great hierarchy. Establish entertainment for the masses. No. Make disciples. Winning men and women to Christ. Remember Peter and that great catch back in Luke chapter 5? Remember that? We, we were several months back now probably, or weeks. I don't know how long ago back. But remember in chapter 5, when Peter had fished all night, no success. He actually knew the waters of Galilee really well, didn't matter, no success whatsoever. And Jesus told him, launch out into the deep. Jesus had prepared a catch. Don't be fooled by the times where nothing seems to be happening. Because the next place you go could be a great harvest. Peter couldn't even bring it all in. But Peter had something to do. It wasn't just that Jesus had prepared the catch. He had to launch out, and he actually had to drop the net. He couldn't just think about dropping the net. Imagine if he just spent the next year thinking about dropping the net. Jesus said, drop the net. Hmm. I wonder if I should drop it now, next week. I mean, as long as I drop it. I get, maybe when I'm 80, I'll drop the net. Yeah, I'll come back. I'll come back to the same exact spot. I'll drop it in 25 years. I'll just think about dropping the net. Yeah, I'll launch out in the deep. Let me ponder that. What does he mean by that? I know where the deep part is, but maybe he's being metaphoric with me. <laughs> See, we're simply told to go and do simple things. Simple things. When you're young, your mom and dad gave you a simple instruction. We don't always listen to simple instructions, do we? We want more answers. We want more of this. We want more of that. But Jesus simply says, go and do these things. I want you also to notice here in verse 1, the Lord appointed. The 70 are appointed. They're chosen. They're selected by design. Not everyone Clearly, I think you would all agree with this. Not everyone is appointed to be a prophet. True? Not everyone's appointed to be apostle. In the truest sense of the word, you know, I believe the, the apostles were those 12 plus, minus 1, plus 2. <laughs> Remember, they had, to, they had to reselect after Judas. Then Paul himself says that he was named an apostle of Jesus Christ. But not everyone's called to be an apostle in the original intent. I understand that there's people that use the word apostle for church planting today and other titles. But that notwithstanding, we know not everyone's chosen to be one of the original 12 apostles. Not everyone's chosen to be an evangelist. Not everyone's given the gift of evangelism. Billy Graham has a gift I've never had. Not everyone's chosen to be a pastor. Not that that's any more important. It's not. It's a, it's a very critical role, but everyone has something. But everyone is appointed. Do you believe this? Everyone is appointed by the Lord to impact the world for Christ. Think about that. Not everyone has the same 
title, but everyone is appointed. If you like sports like I do, on any given team, I don't care if it's baseball, hockey, football, basketball, there's different positions on a team. True? They're not all the same positions. And if everyone tries to play the exact same position, you have a real problem. You can't have 11 quarterbacks. You can't. It's a nightmare. But even though, everyone, even though not everyone has the exact same position, not everyone has the same title, everyone is supposed to work and have impact. And that the Lord would use all of us to have impact. Fanny Crosby, she was born in 1820. She was blind from six weeks of age. Can you imagine that? Blind from six weeks of age. Uh, she was born again, though, by the Spirit of God at the age of 30, even though she had considered herself a Christian all up until then. She had always considered herself a Christian, but she really believed she was born again at the age of 30. She was born afresh by the Spirit. She had memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, much of the Psalms, and all four Gospels. Memorized all of that. She said that whenever she wanted to read a portion of Scripture, she would turn a little button in her mind, and the appropriate passage would flow through her brain like a recorded tape. Although she was best known for the nearly 9,000 hymns that she wrote, for the Lord Jesus Christ. She also wrote patriotic songs during the Civil War. She was a strong, very strong, committed abolitionist well before and during the Civil War to eradicate slavery. You know what's really cool about Fanny Crosby? What's in it, what I find really interesting? Because she was always against slavery and an abolitionist well before, during, after. She was blind. She actually never saw the color of anyone's skin. Ever. How do you explain to someone blind the different variations of skin color? She'd never seen any skin color. She also wrote poetry about the scriptures. She wrote about the Mexican-American War. She wrote about the plight of the Irish potato famine and other observations. She had poetry about each of those things. She was a teacher and an educator for, and taught for 23 years. She wrote several cantatas, which are used in operas. She wrote the libretto or the text for them. She spoke before legislatures. She met numerous U.S. presidents. She, ha- she could have lived financially very, very well because of all that she had written and, and what they were willing to pay her uh, for her writings and the hymns. And, and yet, she gave almost everything away her whole life, she gave almost all financial, and her husband too, when they, after she got married, they would give almost everything away except for their most bare basic necessities, never choosing to live anywhere near the level she could have lived. Can you imagine the American church today making that choice across the board? Wow, the gospel might get around the world in 10 weeks. Asked about her occupation and calling, you know what she would say? To all those things that she had done, when you would ask her about her occupation call, she said, I'm a mission worker. That was what she believed 
that she was. Matter of fact, at the age of 60, remember she got saved at 30, thought she was a Christian before 30, got saved at 30. At the age of 60, she made a new commitment to Christ to serve the poor and devote the rest of her life to mission work and the gospel. She lived to be 95. Matter of fact, her health was really failing uh, in her in those, uh, I want to say it was the 50s, 60s, somewhere in that range, and God gave her a full restoration of health, and she served strong the rest of the way. Her music was also written, uh, she claimed, as a means to bring people to Christ. She wrote music as a means to present the gospel. Her hymns were used by D.L. Moody and Iris Sankey to touch millions on both sides of the Atlantic. Matter of fact, they actually introduced her sims or hymns to much of the world. And what was she? A blind woman, well before equal rights, even before women could vote. Women couldn't vote until the 19, I believe it was 1920. And here she was, a blind woman, couldn't vote, didn't have the same rights. Well, I guess there's not much God can do with me. Mm-mm. No, not everyone is one of the 12 apostles. True? Not everyone's one of the 70. Not every one of us are called to a very specific village somewhere in Israel, but guess what? We're all sent somewhere. God will take the fish and loaves, whether you're blind, lame, can't talk, there's the guy, I can't remember, doesn't have arms and legs. God's done a great ministry. He'll take whatever abilities we have and don't have and multiply it exponentially. Is it possible, church, is it possible that God wants to do more through you and me than he's ever done before? Well, I'm 60. Tell that to Fanny Crosby. Amen? Well, I can't see. I can't do that. I don't have any money. I only have a couple fish and loaves. Those things mean something to you and I, but what do they mean to God? He makes grass grow in asphalt. (laughs) But here, Jesus contrasts his plan and purpose for these villages and really the world, and he shed some light on a problem that existed then and still exists now. Again, these are his words. The labor, the, the, the harvest is great, but the labors are few. One reason God does so much through one person, think about one person Think about people that God has done great things. One reason very well may be, one of the reasons God does so much through very specific individuals, think Moses, David, Paul, George Mueller, who, like Paul, could speak five-plus languages, Fanny Crosby. I mean, it boggles the mind what this woman did in one lifetime, more than like 100 women, lifetimes. D.L. Moody, who, who said the world is yet to see what God could do through one man fully yielded, right? 
one of the reasons why God may do so much through one individual here, there, around the world is because the other nine out of ten or the other 99 out of 100 simply refuse to obey the call. So God does an exponential work in the one. I don't have a verse specifically for that. It's just an observation through history, through the scriptures, that because of God will do an incredible thing through a few because there's only a few. Luke 17, 17, we'll get there down the road. We're in the 10th chapter now. Remember Jesus, he heals, you might know the story, he heals 10 lepers. How many come back to say thanks? One. And Jesus says these words, were not there 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Did they not all receive from me? But where's the gratitude? I gave them healing they're done with me. And Jesus says, I give eternal life. I've brought the message, but only a few of you say, all right, where do you want us to go, Lord? Most of them, hey, we want something from you, but don't ask anything from us. That wasn't George Mueller. That wasn't Fanny Crosby. That wasn't Moses. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. Only one with gratitude. If you're with us in our Ezekiel study on Wednesday nights, I'll read the verse again from Ezekiel 22.30. God laments. And again, God, remember, God doesn't have any limitations. Everything God says is for our benefit. He actually has control of everything. But Ezekiel 22.30, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. So often, the Lord's looking for a couple of laborers. The Marines are looking for a few good men. God's looking for a few men and women willing to go be laborers in the field. Jesus said the laborers are few. There's not many. Just so you know, you're not going to have a huge group with you. You're not going to have the masses. There's not going to be near as many people going to reach people as there's going to be at the local NASCAR event although that could be a great place for a harvest. But you've got to love this response in Isaiah 6 to 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Isn't that great? That's what the Lord wants to hear. Even if it's few, even if there's not many, you and I say, Well, how about us? We've got a couple of fish and loaves. We're blind as a bat. We have no skills. How about us? And God says, to that, I'll give you the ability to memorize. To that, I'll give you the ability to learn languages. To that, I'll multiply. To that, I'll send you in a deep part of the lake where there's more fish than you can possibly catch. And I'll make you, instead of a fisher of fish, a fisher of what? Men. Our labor for the lost, it fulfills the purpose of the Father. But it also molds us into the image of Christ. It makes us into the very thing that he was, that which was seeking the lost. We become the ones that also seek the lost. We mirror our heavenly adoption. 
We're adopted by Christ to become like him. You think about the last past week. What did we do in the last past week that had any eternal value? It's good to think about these things. To think, say, Lord, what did I do in the last week that had any impact on eternity? What did I do in the last week that impacted someone for Christ? Was there anything I can look to? Or was I totally preoccupied with my own self? And yeah, we have to work. We have to put food on the table. But while we're doing those things, is our light shining? Ask the Lord. We have to... Well, he gives us the key right here. We have to come to him. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest. You know, you and I keep praying for laborers. Keep praying that we will be the laborers. We'll be the ones filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll be the one anointed. We pray him for the harvest. You know, the Lord is the one that's going to have a day. I believe we'll have a day here when we'll see many get saved in this church. Many. I believe it's coming. When? I don't know. I keep preparing. I keep praying for rain. I keep planting. I keep doing these things. You keep praying. You keep planting. You keep preparing. Collectively, you do your part. I do my part. We all just say, Lord, we keep praying. But the main thing is not our works. It's praying to the Lord of the harvest. Because you can work yourself to death and accomplish nothing. Amen? That's not what... what, Lord didn't tell Peter, now... Get a motor on the boat. Ride in circles all around the lake. Keep dra- Drag the net everywhere you go. Drag it everywhere. Start shooting, the, shooting fish in a barrel. You know, get a gun. Do anything you can. Harpooning them. Do everything. He said, listen to me. Go out here and do this. Go to these villages two by two. Just go two by two. You already sent the 12. Just go do what I said look um, in our remaining time, the prospects and the principles. By nature, we like to know what we're up against, don't we? We do. What's this going to cost me? Is this going to hurt? Is this going to be painful? Is this going to work? What are the risks? We like to know our chances of success. We like predictive analytics if you're in business. If we buy a product, will we actually like it? If we invest the time, will it be worth the effort? Disciples, no doubt, probably had some of these same thoughts when he says, you 70, I've appointed you two by two, go into these villages. They're they're humans just like us. They think the same thing. How's this going to go? Will we be received? Is anyone going to listen? Will they think we're weirdos? They think we're Lost our minds. How do you believe this stuff? Whatever it is. They have the same flawed human nature as we do. They have been, may have been thinking, what are we going to encounter? What can we expect to encounter? How will this message of the kingdom of God be received? All the same questions. I don't know about you, but when the Lord puts it on my heart to say something to someone, I'm thinking, I don't think they're going to listen. I don't think they're going to be interested. They've probably heard it a million times. All the same thing. That's not God speaking, by the way. That's my flesh. And then if my flesh doesn't get the job done, the enemy will come in and add a few more things. Because the Lord says, you ignore all that. I said, go, two by two. Here's the message. 
Well, what? A matter of fact, Jesus tells them some other things along the way here. He addresses their potential thoughts from the outset, but he also addresses some of our human inclination. He says, um, "Don't go from." He says, "When you go to these places, don't go from house to house." Um, he even says. Um, Send you out as I uh, send you out as uh, lambs among wolves. Um, greet no one along the road in verse four. Greet no one along the road. You know what Jesus is talking about? He's saying, "Don't get sidetracked. You'll be busy doing my work, and all of a sudden, oh, there it is. There's Target. <laughs> they didn't have Target though back then, but you know what I mean." And you can get completely sidetracked. Oh, the internet. This, that, and the other. He said, don't stop. I've given you a charge. Go do this work. There will be many things that will distract you is what he's saying. There's going to be a lot of things that will distract you. The good is always the enemy of the best. Good things are often the enemy of the best. Well, I could invite my neighbor but instead, I think I'll go to a Christian concert. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying anything bad with that. But the Lord may want you to do something that is the best. I want you to invest. Hey, skip that. Invite them over for dinner. Best. Good. They're in battle with each other. Greeting someone on the way seems like a good thing. But Jesus says, I've prepared these villages they're the deep place where I want you to launch the net. That's where I'm sending you. Don't get sidetracked. And we're going into uh, youth correctional facility tonight. You know, those that are going have prepared their hearts to go. I was going to go, but I found a really great Bible study online, so I decided to stay home and watch it. Sidetracked. Those things are good. Do that on Monday night. There is a time to be taught. And there's a time to go teach and to go share. And Jesus is saying, you're going to get sidetracked. Don't do these things. Don't worry about how you're going to be received. You're going to go into these places. Some will listen. Some won't. Some will receive you. You might find a house where a son of peace is there. Your peace will rest on that house. Some will listen to you. Some will not. Some will receive the message. Some will not. And Jesus doesn't tell them in advance, nor does he tell us. He doesn't tell them who would receive them and who wouldn't receive them. He just simply says, not everyone's going to receive, but some will. We have to, by faith, simply trust the reception of the message, and we have to trust the results to the Lord. You know, after a while, that's a really liberating place, isn't it? When you stop realizing that you're really not dependent upon it. I just drafted a letter. Ten months later than I wanted to do. Talk about getting distracted. I'm guilty of this. I get distracted a lot. Am I the only one? So I got distracted this year, sometimes with a really good thing. And the Lord had put on my heart to invite some of my neighbors to dinner and a dessert night. So I, I was drafting the note. I drafted it two weeks ago. I will send this out. Now I've got to pick another date, a little another two weeks out. Now, I don't know if any of them are going to show up. But guess who those results belong to? The Lord. Invite them to church, invite them, reach out to them. The Lord is the one that provides the results. But how wonderful it is, Jesus says, 
whenever you're in our house and they receive you, peace to this house. You know, when there's a reception to the gospel, it brings peace. Households that don't have peace, there's many all around us that don't have peace, but when they receive the gospel, peace will come to that house. Divorces can be stopped. Abuse can be stopped. Addictions can be stopped. Peace can come to any house that receives. Isn't that great? Jesus says, when you go, you're going to see peace come to houses. When they receive you, they receive me. When they receive me, they receive my message. When they receive my message, they receive peace. And it brings a gracious peace from heaven. But this isn't always the case. That's why we have to pray for boldness, as Acts 4.29. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. We have to pray for boldness. You and I don't naturally have boldness. Certain animals instinctually are filled with boldness. We don't have that. We have to pray for it. We're flawed. We don't have the animal instincts to just attack something. The Lord says we have to pray for boldness to go into the battle. We tend to want to run away from the battle, right? That's our natural. That's why we have to put on the shield of of armor, breastplate of righteousness. We have to face it, but we have to face it in the power of the Lord's strength. Pray for his boldness. Pray for the Lord of the harvest. I want to look at a couple of quick principles. We don't have time to really study them, but I want to point them out to you. A couple of things here. Number one, a couple of principles. One principle to look at here is that Jesus sends them out two by two. When possible, when it comes to evangelism, it's great to go with a fellow laborer because two are stronger than one. And a threefold, threefold cord isn't quickly broken, is it? We need each other. When you go out in evangelism, going with someone else is always a good thing. Peter and John, we see them together in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Silas. Paul and Timothy. We see these two, two, even Priscilla and Aquila. We see these. um, Now, there are exceptions to that at times, and God can use one person by themselves, no doubt about it. But as a rule, going in our own strength, never, going in the power of the Holy Spirit, always, and going two by two, preferable. Send them out two by two. He sends them out as lambs. If you're taking, again, another item to look at here. Lambs among wolves. You want to go out representing the humility of Christ. You don't go out. You go out with the boldness of a lion, but the disposition of a lamb. That makes sense? You have the humility of Christ, the sacrificial spirit of Christ. You come bringing the sacrifice of Christ. You bring the good news of of his sacrifice. So we go out as a lamb among wolves. Um, verse 4, don't carry money, don't carry a backpack, sandals. Don't depend on human means. Isn't that great? You can't purchase someone into heaven. You can't have enough, you know, sometimes we think, well, we don't have enough programs. We don't have enough this. We don't have that. If we only had, uh, if we only had, um, you know, uh, if we had more talent, if I was a 12th degree black belt, people would listen to me. 
right? Jesus said, you don't need any of those things. Don't trust in the means of this world. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you also have to be willing, like we saw with Fanny Crosby, to forego and to give up the material things of this world. To really live. You can't live for those things and live for the ministry that God has called us all to. Not to say that you can't have things, but if you're living for those things, there's a big problem there. Don't take these things with you. They'll only hold you back. Don't get sidetracked, as we looked at. Greeting people, Laura, don't get sidetracked. Don't get taken off course. Stay abiding in Christ in this ministry that he's called us to, and that's to be laborers in his harvest. Don't go from house to house. Where he sends you, plant yourself there. Be firm, steadfast, immovable. You know, the Lord has given us a place on Hall Street Road right here. We have to, he said, plant a ministry right here. Don't uproot and go all over the place. Plant here and keep, and keep ministering to the community. That's what he was saying. Go to these places, establish a foothold, win a family to Christ, start the local body there, prepare the way for me, and it'll grow. Isn't that great? You know, Paul would later follow this model. Establish a place, get, get the ministry planted, elders and deacons, and then let the ministry grow from there. It's the work of the Spirit. Now, four quick things as well as far as the present, actually five. Five things in the presentation of the gospel. One is the first and foremost thing. Five things in the presentation of the gospel here as principles to speak of or to know. Number one, pray. You're going to share the gospel? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for their heart. Pray for your preparation. Pray for the anointing of the words you're going to say. Number one, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's found right there in verse 2. The next ones are found in verses 9 through 12. Verse 1, and heal the sick. Number 2, compassion. Have compassion for those. They may not know they're sick. They may not know they're lost. You're there to bring healing to them. Have compassion. By the way, you won't have compassion unless you prayed. You must pray first. God will give compassion. Number three, say to them, you've got to speak the gospel. Yes, we've got to live it, but at times you've got to speak it. Say to them, speak the gospel. Verse 11, nevertheless, know this. Be grounded in truth. You've got to be grounded in the truth. You have to know that what you're sharing comes from God and is true. And then the fifth, but I say to you, verse 12, it'll be more tolerable on that day. Number five, you're going to have to have boldness to say things people aren't going to want to hear sometimes. Do you think anyone that doesn't believe in hell wants you to tell them there really is a hell? You narrow-minded backwoods, 200 years ago individual. No, I'm more than that. I'm like 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ said that these things are true. There really is a hell. There really is a heaven. There really is a judgment. Let's look at the last thing this morning, the pride. He says you're going to go to some cities, verse 11, And they're going to reject. 
Some places were rejected because you wipe off the, wipe off the um, dust and say, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And he says that we, they, were supposed to tell him, hey, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than this city for your rejection of the truth if you're taking notes under pride. Jesus goes on in verses 13 through 16, and he says these woes. Woe to Chorazin. Woe to Bethsaida. Woe, and that, well, down in 15, verse 15, he doesn't use the word woe, but he says, and to you, Capernaum, or exalted to heaven, you'll be brought down to Hades or brought down to hell. He cites these uh, specific cities. They were in the land of Israel. He speaks of Gentile cities like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was certainly in the land of Israel, but it was Gentile cities before Israel ever became Israel. And he says these Gentile cities, if they'd have seen, if they'd have seen the truth that you guys have seen, if they'd have seen my word, my work, my ministry, they would have repented. And by the way, American cities that have heard the gospel many times, the Billy Grahams visited their cities, and many televangelists. You know, there's cities around the world that God is preparing to come to Christ in great way. They've not yet heard the gospel, and many of them will repent, because in our cities, we say, I've heard it all before. My grandparents were Christians. I've abandoned all that for something better. Isn't that sad? He said, it'll be more tolerable. Boy, the more truth you know and you reject, not a good thing. What you know, we're accountable for. It's amazing when I look at a city like Boston that many years ago was filled with Christians that loved the Lord and now so much humanism and complete rejection of God, complete rejection of the scriptures. There's a great heritage there. Even places like Harvard were founded to train pastors. How many people even know that in America? Princeton, the same thing. These are the seat now of godlessness in in many cases. And Jesus looks at those kind of places and says, it's not that you haven't received the witness. You flatly rejected it. Then you have places around the world where they've never heard of Christ. They might have grown up their whole from childhood as a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, and when they hear the gospel, they receive it like living water. Jesus said, if that message had been preached in Tyre and Sidon, if that had been preached in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. If they would have seen my works, they would have seen the works of these apostles. We're given a choice. All of us were given a choice. And there's a tremendous price, Jesus is telling us, for rejecting the mercy, but also the warning. These cities, they had seen the power of Christ, and yet they still were not moved. Yeah, they liked Jesus feeding them, but they didn't want to follow him. They might have thought, hey, you teach pretty well but we're not interested in you being our Lord and Savior. What else you got? David and Solomon built a great kingdom. You're going to do that? No. Well, then I'm, does, it, does it impact my bank account? Actually, no. You're going to have to actually be willing to have nothing, but you'll get to go to heaven. I'm not interested. And so many of them reject it. In their pride and their blindness, they reject the very loving witness and warning of God. Suppose you got a job at SeaWorld. Most of you probably aren't looking in that direction right now. We have a couple of guys that are looking. I doubt many have been combing the SeaWorld uh, website for job opportunities. But 
Follow me on this. Suppose you got, you got a job at SeaWorld. Maybe take yourself back to your college days when that would have been a good job for you. Right, you know, maybe summer job or something like that. And you were strictly told, you were strictly told, do not go into the tank with an orca. Do not go into the tank with an orca, a.k.a. killer whales. They're actually part of the porpoise family. But, um, and this orca specifically, they don't go into the tank. It was recently taken out of the wild and into captivity. Do not go into the tank of any orca, and especially not this one. Came out of the wild. And you had access to the tank area. You had access to it. To walk in there, walk, come and go. And you ignore the warning, and here's your logic. You ignore the warning because even though you were given this warning, he seems like a happy, friendly whale to you. He seems very happy swimming around in there. You said, well, he looks happy to me. I know they said don't get in there. He looks like a happy whale. As a matter of fact, his face looks like a smile all the time. Every time he opens his mouth, it looks like a smile to me. Looks like a smile. So you throw him some fish, and it looks like even more of a smile. You keep throwing fish, it looks like he's got a huge smile on his face. And then you remember all the times you went to SeaWorld as a kid and you saw people riding orcas and going through hoops. And as far as you could remember, no one ever got hurt. No one got hurt. You watched all the shows, you enjoyed it, you went a dozen times and no one got hurt. And you know what? Viewing the world through our own experience rather than facts. And most importantly, the facts that come from God is incredibly dangerous. The world views the world through its own experience. And God says, uh, he looks happy to you, doesn't he? He looks frolicky. That looks like a smile to you with razor sharp teeth. You think he wants to play with you. But it's a dangerous thing when we use our viewpoint and construe it as facts when it's not facts at all. It's our own flawed vision, our own pride, our own blindness, our own, I know better than the people that warned me. By the way, any warning we receive is not from me or from you, it's from God. We only proclaim what he's warned. In the short term and in the long term, it's incredibly dangerous, especially eternally, to trust in our own vision. Even taking Jesus' words here, some might think, well, I never saw Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. I never saw that happen. I'm not even sure it did happen. You know, there's a lot of people who wouldn't even believe it happened. Where, uh, where's the evidence of it? I don't know much about it. I've never seen it in my life. Matter of fact, I've never even seen any city be destroyed in my lifetime. So it must not happen. Tell that to people in Nagasaki. I never saw it happen but it happened. You know, there's actually been four fatalities of trainers that got into tanks with orcas since the 60s. Four fatalities. And these were trainers that actually knew the whales and thought, we're tight. We have a good working relationship, don't we? And when they aren't used to, as a matter of fact, one of the most recent ones they really believe it was sold from another place. It had, no, it, had, it had very little human contact, so it didn't know what to make of someone getting into the tank with them. 
The most recent death in 2010 has resulted SeaWorld no longer has humans in the tanks with orcas. There's a lot of lawsuits and everything else. So all the show is now the orca does its thing in the water. The humans do their thing outside the water. There's one particular one where the fatality was where someone was in there with three orcas and the orcas were tossing the person back and forth. That person died. It was just a play toy to them. See, you could think, well, that's a big smile. I don't think there's any danger at all. And someone's warning you and say, no, no, there's a lot of danger. Don't go in there. I know it looks fun. I know it looks like it's going to be just the same old thing. But no, getting in the tank is dangerous. But it's even more dangerous to not heed the call of God. Amen? It's even more dangerous to hear the truth and say, I'm not interested. That's why Jesus is saying it's more tolerable that you not heard it at all. But to, for you to hear it and ignore it and say, I don't care what you say, I'm getting in the tank anyway. Not wise at all. I'll close with this quote from William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you to go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burden, agonized heart of humanity, and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go, stand by the gates of hell, and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all you are weary, heavy laden, thirsty. Why don't you stand with me as we close? But I want you just for a moment, as we'll close in song in just a second, but um, this message, I mean, we all know that God wants to save sinners. Amen? But don't let the words of Jesus fall off us. Let them sink down into our ears, as he said in chapter 9. Sink down into our ears. If the labors are few, let's be the few. Amen? Because he can do a lot with a few. You know, we don't have to compare our lives, but yet we can look at a life like a Fanny Crosby And that should be an eye-opener, ironically, someone who doesn't have sight, an eye-opener that it doesn't matter who you are, God will use you as an impact for Christ. And I'm 45. gives me hope that at 60, I could probably do a lot more at 60 than at 45, if we continue to grow. Amen? And I was thinking, I didn't do the math. I I was thinking I woke up in the middle of the night. I was thinking, if 80 people... And some of you that are really mathematicians, you could probably figure out the number off the top of your head. But if 80 people, let's say there's 85 people in this room, 85 people, even 40 weeks out of 52 weeks, that's giving you some sick time, some vacation time, and some I completely forgot time. 40 out of 52 weeks invited one person a week to church. One person a week. I think the number is well over 3,000. 
Isn't that amazing? God says, if you would stop and think what I could do if you prayed, Lord, of the harvest, it would be more than you could exceedingly ask, think, or imagine. That's what the scriptures say. Amen? I'm going to just pray for a moment. I want you to pray with me that we recommit to being laborers in the harvest. And that we ask the Lord for boldness and compassion, right? Because if you don't have his help, you're spinning your wheels. And so am I. Amen?